Take your Bibles out in Nehemiah chapter 8, if you would. We're going to look at the way that the Word of God works in our lives. How do we approach the Word of God in a way that it can be transformative, that it can change our lives and make us more like Jesus Christ? So Nehemiah 8, if you don't have your Bible with you, that is a nearly unforgivable offense. We will give you grace. Please grab one of those Bibles right in front of you. They're blue. I mean, I'll come open it for you if I need to. If I see somebody that doesn't have one open, I'll just take that as an invitation to come help you. See, you're not even... Wow, this is going to be hard this morning. I feel like it's a mile between me and Warren and Marcia, and they're like the closest to me. All right, I'm out of jokes. Let's get into the Word of God. Spurgeon, one of my favorite, probably my favorite historical pastor ever, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he once was speaking in an auditorium that he had never spoken in before. So he went out before the service began to test the acoustics of the, this great big auditorium. And he stepped into the pulpit of that large empty room and he loud, loudly quoted John 1.29, which goes like this. Imagine Spurgeon loudly quoting this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's all he said. No preamble, no comment. He just was testing the acoustics of this auditorium. He stepped out of the pulpit, went his way to return in a little while to preach. Unknown to him, there were two men up in the rafters working on making sure everything was ready for the service that was about to begin in a couple hours one of them, neither of them were Christians. One of them was convicted at that moment when he quoted John 129. And later that evening came to put his trust in Jesus Christ. That's all Spurgeon did. Quote one John 129. Listen, that's the power of God's word. That's the might of God's breathed out Bible. It's living and it's active. It works in our hearts in amazing ways. So let me catch you up before we go forward. Let me get in the rear view mirror just briefly. Because last week we looked, look at your Bibles if you would, look at the end of verse 2 of chapter 8 in Nehemiah. It says that this was the first day of the seventh month. That's the month Tishri. This is the day of the Feast of Trumpets. And look at what it says in verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And then you go to verse 2. Both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. See, those who were old enough. That's what that means. Those who were old enough. To understand what was being read and explained. Those two young did not gather. They were not part of this great assembly. For it was time to listen to God's word. Now that just makes sense, right? And if I were to write sermons that could be understood on a three-year-old's level, it's going to lack the depth and the relevancy for our lives on our level. So we're thankful. Listen, we are so thankful for those who take care of our children, those who serve our children, taking care of them in the nursery, teaching them the Word of God so clearly. And parents, we want to encourage you, let us take care of your babies in the nursery. You know why? 
I have four kids. And I know that when my squirming, restless, need-to-move child is sitting next to me and I'm trying to keep that little one quiet, I'm not listening. And I'm not interacting in the worship and I'm not interacting in the sermon. Let us take care of your children. Let us teach them the Word of God. And let you listen so that you can apply these truths when you are with your family. So all who were able to understand, that's what it says, gathered in the massive square before the water gate. Why the water gate? Now listen, this isn't the only place that could have housed this crowd in Jerusalem. Why the water gate? There's a massive square right in front of the water gate. You walk through the water gate and you're in this huge, massive opening. Why there when there were other places that could have met the need for this crowd? Well, if you remember in chapter 3, and by the way, this is all introduction. We're going to get rolling in a moment. If you remember in chapter 3, when we took our tour around the wall, and we saw all 12 of these gates, and we got to the water gate, we saw how significant it was. This is the gate, friends, that the Nethanim, the temple servants, they would come and they would go through that gate and draw the water that they would bring to the temple for the priests to wash, for the implements that were being used in the temple to be purified, for the sacrifices to be purified. This is where they drew the water for the purification. And so it symbolizes... The word of God. You see, water for drinking in, in the scriptures symbolizes the power of the Holy Spirit. Water for purification symbolizes the power of God's word to make us clean before God. In fact, Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, here's the answer. By guarding it according to your word. Listen, if you want purity... If you want your life to be purified, to be clean before God, the cleansing agent is the word of God. And so it's at the water gate that the Holy Spirit fills us with God's word to sanctify, to purify our hearts, renewing our minds with truth, scrubbing away those old desires and giving us new ones. And by the way, do you remember on this tour that there were lots of gates that Nehemiah and the and the Jews had to rebuild, but not the water gate. That gate did not need repairing. And again, it symbolizes the word of God that is indestructible. It never will fall into ruin. Jesus said, my words will never pass away. This is the water gate, the water gate of the word of God. So here's Nehemiah. He's assembling this great crowd. I'll tell you likely how large that crowd was in a moment. But he's assembling them before this particular gate because while the walls were rebuilt, the people of God needed to be revived. You hear that? The wall's done. The gates are set. They're operating. But now it's time to revive the people of God to the worship of their God. And so in our passage this morning, introduction's done in eight seconds. In our passage this morning... We're going to see how do we approach the Word of God? How should we approach the Word of God if it's going to be transformative in our lives? Now listen, this is probably one of the most often questions I'm given. Pastor Tim, how do I study 
the Bible. So that it means something to me, so that it changes me, so that it's powerful in my life. Listen, I'm going to answer that question literally by just bringing out what Nehemiah says. I'm going to give you five principles this morning. We're going to see more next week, possibly more the week after. Actually, the week after, you're going to have a guest speaker, two guest speakers. It's going to be pretty fun. How do we approach the Word of God so that it transforms us? Here we go. You ready? Principle number one. You've got to approach the Word of God eagerly. Listen, this is so practical this morning. In fact, somebody came up to me last night and they said, I loved that message. And I said, really? Why? And he goes, because I can do this. This is practical. This is encouraging. Well, here it is. You approach the Word of God with eagerness. Look at verse 1. Now listen, this is not what Tim has to say this morning. This is what the Bible has to say that I'm just bringing clearly to you. Here it is, verse 1. The second part in particular. They told Ezra, read it with me, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now we'll get into the eagerness in a minute, but let me give you a little bit of an introduction because we've not yet met Ezra. We've not yet seen him in the book of Nehemiah. So let me bring you an introduction to Ezra. He's a descendant, a direct descendant. If you go back to Ezra chapter 7 verse 5, he's a direct descendant of no other person than Aaron, the high priest. I mean, this is good stock. This is a man who came from Aaron. He's got priestly blood in his veins. He was a priest. Look at verse 9 of our passage, chapter 8. Look what it says. He's a priest and a scribe. Scribes are Jewish lawyers. I know you don't like Ezra all of a sudden. That was a joke that apparently nobody gets. He's a scribe. He's an expert in the law of God. You see, scribes were trained to read various languages. They are multilingual. They are brilliant, intelligent men. They're trained in the languages of their day, and they grew to have great authority. Their jobs were to guard the Jewish culture, guard the Jewish book of the law. In fact, here's what the scribes had done by the time of Jesus. They took the word of God, particularly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and they didn't want anybody to break it, to distort it, to change it. So they built a wall around the word of God. In their words, they built a fence around it. And by the time of Jesus, that fence was 613 Oral traditions. When you drink wine, here's one of them. They would drink the wine through clenched teeth. Because a gnat, their smallest insect, was declared impure. And they didn't want to swallow a gnat accidentally and be, pure, be impure before God. So they would drink their wine, straining the little bugs. And then they would take the bugs out of their teeth and they would throw them away. That's one of 613 of them. Built to protect the Jewish people. Built to protect the word of God. But here's the problem. By the way, if you've been in a legalistic church... You've experienced this. Maybe it's a good day to tell you this because years and years ago I was in a legalistic church as a parishioner like most of you. And it was Super Bowl Sunday like it is today and that pastor stood up that morning 
And he said, we have church tonight, and I would expect that none of you are going to miss church tonight for the Super Bowl. That would not be pleasing to God. And I'm a young man. That struck terror into my heart. It really did. All after, We had a party planned. And all afternoon, I'm deliberating. Should I go to church? Should I cancel this party? Or am I free in God's grace to have this party? I'm feeling conflicted. I'm feeling guilty. Finally, we ended up staying because we had so many people coming. We had the party. And I don't even remember any. I don't even remember who was playing. I don't remember one part of that party. The entire time, I'm feeling guilty because I'm not in church. That's legalism. That's a fence that comes around the law that protects the purity of God, except, listen, the fence became, by the time of Jesus, more authoritative in the people of God than the Bible did. And that's legalism. When this can become more authoritative than the Bible, you're into legalism. And so the scribes developed this fence. The scribes' jobs, though, in Ezra's day, this was before that fence got built, their job was to guard the purity of the Word of God, guard the religion of the Jews. So Ezra, a scribe and a priest, he brings back, he leads back to Jerusalem the second wave of exiles who are in bondage, used to be to Babylon, now to Persia. And he arrived with his group 14 years before Nehemiah led the third group. So you've got contemporaries. You've got Nehemiah, the governor. You've got Ezra, the priest and the scribe. And you've got Ezra's life, which this is amazing. God worked in the heart of King Artaxerxes to let Ezra go back. And I want you to read the mission of Ezra. By the way, do you know your mission? Do you know your purpose for being on this planet? Do you know? You need to pray. You need to let God reveal why he has you on this earth. Listen, when your purposes are done, you go home to heaven. When King David, it says in Acts, fulfilled the purposes of God, he fell asleep. If you're alive in your breathing, which right now I'm kind of wondering if you are, but if you're alive in your breathing, then you've got a purpose to live. Listen, don't give up on life. God's got you here for a reason. You got to discover it. But here's his mission, here's his purpose. Ezra chapter 7, 10, you can see it behind me. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Here's Ezra. I'm going to study God's word, I'm going to do God's word, and I'm going to teach God's word. That's why he lived, that's what he was doing, that's why he went back to Jerusalem. And so you've got the first seven chapters, which we just completed in Nehemiah. Listen, this is interesting. The first seven chapters are Nehemiah's personal letters. They're his diary. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden the tone changes in chapter 8. Most people believe it's because Ezra begins to write. And now Ezra is chronicling the history of the Jews. So now chapter 8 through 12 is Ezra writing. You've got Nehemiah writing chapters 1 through 7, Ezra writing 8 through 12. And by the way, Nehemiah and Ezra, did you know that they used to be one book? Jerome and the Latin Vulgate separated these two books to be Ezra and Nehemiah. Originally, they were one book because they're so closely intertwined. And so we've got Ezra, or we got Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8. Look what it says. He opens up what? The law of Moses, meaning the first five books 
of the Bible. And he read it from early morning until midday. Now, some of you whine and complain that my sermons are in the 40-minute range. I want you to know proudly that I had one 51 minutes a few weeks ago. I was really burning up the cylinders. Matthew Millen, Pastor Matthew, had one 53. He's the most long-winded of all of us. Gets it from his father. He'll admit it. Listen, this is six hours. Can you hear that? Six hours and they're standing. Somebody told me last night. Pastor Tim, that's really not much of a point to make because Ezra was probably interesting to listen to. (laughs) But it's easy to miss what I'm about to tell you. Look back at your text. We've all got to be seeing what we're about to see. Look at verse 1. And they told Ezra. Who told Ezra? Remember, this is all about eagerness. This wasn't... Ezra's idea, hey, I'm going to bring out the book of the law and I'm going to read it for six hours. These 13 Levites up on the platform with them, when I'm going to introduce you to them in a moment, it wasn't their idea. It wasn't Nehemiah the governor's idea. By the way, Ezra, when you go out to see the people, bring the word of God to bear. This was the people's idea. This was your idea, Cornerstone, because they came to this assembly eager and hungry to hear the word of God. Listen, is that the way you came this morning? If you want the word of God to change your life, you've got to approach it eagerly and hungrily and excitedly. God is about to speak to you. They wanted to hear the word of God, which, by the way, had nearly been extinguished during their exile. And they would have come to church this morning ready to sing, but eager for the reading and for the explaining of the Word of God. Listen, when you take your Bible tomorrow morning or tomorrow night or maybe even tonight and you open it up, is there going to be an eagerness? If you don't start with eagerness, you're likely to close the Bible in a few minutes going, I really don't think I got anything out of it. If you want to get something out of the Word of God, if you want it to change your life, the number one principle is you've got to be eager to hear from God. And then you move to the second point. There needs to be an expectation. Now, I want you to listen to this very, very carefully because this could be misconstrued. There's a deadly rumor going around our church regarding a married couple, been circulating for a couple months. I want to deal with it this morning. This is the time to talk about it. Now, you be honest. Did your ears just perk up? If I were out there with you and the preacher said that, I'm sure I would have been listening with full attention. Why is that? How can we all of a sudden have our ears opened up? What makes our ears open up? It's something within us grabs hold of what is being said, hungrily, eagerly, and then with expectation. The problem with a lot of us when it comes to reading and studying the Word of God, there is just no expectation that God, the creator of all there is, is going to actually speak to us when we look into His Word. There's no expectation of it. 
Listen, if the Bible is God-breathed, meaning it has emerged from within God Himself and His Spirit organically makes it living and active, if that is true and it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it can penetrate all the way down to separating the thoughts and the motives and the attitudes of our heart, and then when you sit down and you open this up and you're eager, and then your expectations rise, God is about to speak to me. What's he going to say? Look at verse 3. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There was an expectation. Their ears opened up. They came. They asked Ezra, bring the word of God and read it to us. And we want to be attentive. We want to hear what God has to say to us. Friends, we don't read to critique the Bible. We read the Bible to let it critique us. There is a massive difference. You know, have you ever ordered anything off of Amazon and before you hit the click here to purchase button or the buy now with one click button, you start reading the reviews, how many stars those who have purchased that product or that book have given it. Listen, Amazon has that feature that allows readers and those who are going to buy something to review it before they buy. But listen, the Bible has to be able to review and to rate our hearts. And the reviewer is the Spirit of God. He's going to look into our hearts. You know, years ago, I was driving to church and lived on Southside. This is back in 96. Coming down south, south side and around the curve, there was a police car with a digital speed readout on its trunk facing me. And it showed me what I was the speed that I was going. And even though my speed that was being read out to me was below the posted speed limit, even though that was true, my, my foot automatically went off the gas and hit the brake. That's just the way it works. Do you not do that usually when you see a police officer inside the road? Even if you're not speeding. Sandy's shaking her head no, that's why she has a fractured leg, I think. <laughs> Those of us who are godly tend to do that including Sandy. Listen, that's the Word of God. When you're reading the Word of God and the Spirit of God begins to review our hearts and all of a sudden He shows us something that's not pleasing to Him and we hit the brakes on that sin and we begin to eagerly, with expectation, receive the grace of God to be able to live rightly before Him. Friends, do you read the Bible? Now listen, you have to interact. This sermon will be worthless if you don't put this into application immediately, do you read the Bible as if God himself has sat down with you to speak? When we open the Bible to read and to study, there's got to be thinking going on in our mind and expectation that God's going to speak into us the truth that we need to know that we need to live by. This is, this is David from Psalm, Psalm 119. Open my eyes. This is expectation. Why? That I might behold wondrous things out of your law. There's eagerness and there's expectation. What enables us to expect wonderful things in God's law is when we regard it more highly than any other book. And it leads us to the third point. So first of all, you've got to come to God's word eagerly. By the way, that's not difficult to do. Some of you are eager, love to eagerly shop 
Some of you love to eagerly get a new technical toy. Some of you love to eagerly watch football. Some of you love to eagerly get together and try a new restaurant with friends. Eagerness is not something that just has to happen to us. You can bring your heart into eagerness when you sit down and you contemplate. I'm going to open the living and active word of God and God is going to sit down and the spirit of God is going to speak to me and apply it to my life because I need it desperately. And he will do that when the third one is in operation of our hearts, and that is esteem. Listen, low self-esteem simply means you value and regard yourself lowly. Esteem is the value. It's how you regard somebody or something. And when you find the Bible boring, and when you find it helpful, it's almost always true that you do not highly value or esteem or regard the Bible. If it's boring to you, I can promise you, you don't highly value it. And I have found personally that the more I mark up my Bible with highlights and underlines and short notes, the more highly I begin to value it. When you mark up the Bible, it will begin to mark up your life. Look at verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood 13 men that I really cannot pronounce their names. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Listen, this is not Ezra's brilliant idea of ingenuity. This was already done by Solomon. He built a bronze platform and he stood on that high platform when they dedicated the temple of God so that all the people could see. And he prayed before all the people on the top of this platform. So here we've got Ezra, we've got men on either side of him, 13 priests, 13 leaders, and they're surrounding him and they're elevated. Why? So that the people can see and that they can be heard. But even more than that, it was to elevate the word of God to the place of authority that it deserved. Listen, if you're going to learn from the word of God and it's going to be transformative in your life, you've got to eagerly approach it with high expectation, but it's got to be elevated and esteemed in your life. God's word is above us. It is over us. It is for us. Ezra stood on this wooden platform, like kind of like our modern, like ancient versions of our modern day elders, and likely they're taking turns because I can tell you my voice is already starting to get scratchy. He's probably not going to be able to read loudly. There were no amplification microphones. He's not going to be able to read loudly for six hours. So they're taking turns, likely, reading the law of God to the people. And notice what the people did as he opened God's word. Look in your text. All the people stood. Which in the Old Testament, people stood as a sign of respect for the person or respect for the word of God. In fact, when God spoke to Ezekiel, he commanded, son of man, stand on your feet. And I will speak with you. Now, I'll never forget as a young teenager, my father and three other men started the church that I grew up in. We were always at church. 
My father was always an elder of the church. That church today has grown. They've planted three or four churches. This is a huge church in Manlius, New York. It's awesome to go back and visit and realize this is the legacy of my father and three other men as God raised them up to lead this work. It's amazing. But I remember dad was always an elder, and I remember that meant like Jack Templeton often does this. His children will say this to me as well. You know what? Dad was almost always the last person to leave the church, and we're 30 minutes from home. Here it is Sunday afternoon on this particular Sunday. It was nice, beautiful Sunday, and I wanted to get home. I wanted to get out with my friends. I wanted to go do stuff, and my dad is talking, and he's talking, and he's talking. And finally, you know what I do? You do this, by the way, when you're a leader's child. You stand next to them. You don't dare say anything. You just stand next to them. My daughter does this to me. And when the other person can't tell and they, they happen to look at you, you go, your eyebrows go up. That's code. I'm really getting frustrated. I'm going to go home. He's not budging. I go out to the car and on this particular parking lot, you had to go up an incline. There's a lower and an upper parking lot. You go up this gravel road up to the upper part of the parking lot. And there, there's my sister standing next to the car and I'm walking towards, and I got about here from Dominic, and I took my Bible in frustration, and I just threw it, and it landed on the car. I will never forget how shocked my sister was, and how angrily she told me to never, ever treat the Bible like that again. And to my knowledge, friends, I never have done that again, even to the point where at home I will not put anything over my Bible. Now listen, I'm not prescribing legalistically what you should do physically with your Bible. My personal intent is never to ever reduce the Bible to the level of another book, to, uh, rather to elevate it to the very highest status in my life. That's esteem and that is value. So then when I open the Bible, I am fully, fully anticipating God's going to speak to me and he's going to reveal to me what I need to see. You approach the Bible eagerly. You open it with expectation. And you, hide, you, you hold it higher than any other philosophy, any other book in your life, because this is the only book on the planet that is living and active. Every other book, the moment it's off the press, it's, or it's, it's benign. It doesn't move. It's not living and active. It may stir you, but it's written... And its job is done when the author is done. This book continues to work. The fourth principle is exaltation. We're going to see it in the Bible in just a moment. When we are eager for God's word, when we're expecting God to speak, when we lift it up and esteem it as life-giving knowledge, our hearts will respond in worship and exaltation. Look at verse 6 with me. Let's read it together. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen. Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You know, years ago, you know, when, I, when I was studying this past week and I got to Amen, Amen, it reminded me of what happened. This is one of my top five most embarrassing moments in my entire life. 
I was a youth pastor and a counseling pastor here at this church, and I'm trying to expand my referral base. There were so many people coming for counseling that I needed to be able to refer them, but to refer them to trustworthy counselors. So I began to call the Christian counselors in our area, and I began to line up lunches so that I could meet with them. And this particular counselor, who's still practicing, he's very, very well known in the area, very professional. He has his doctorate. I called them up. I was trying to, this was in the morning. I'm tired. I'm distracted. I've got a list of people to call. I've got a lot of things to do. I'm thoughtlessly calling. I get to his voicemail and I leave my message and I introduce myself, who I am, why I'm calling, asking him to return a phone call to me. And again, I'm not even thinking about what I'm saying, which is a bad thing to do when you're leaving anything on an irretrievable machine. And all of a sudden, instead of what normal, sane homo sapiens would do by saying goodbye, I say, in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) And by the time I say amen, I am now fully back to attention of what I'm doing. And there's no way I could get it back. So I just go for about five seconds going, uh, I don't even know what to do. It's rare that I get speechless. The only thing I knew to do was hurriedly say goodbye and hang it up. I got to go out to lunch with this guy. I make the he calls back. We make the appointment, and I didn't even know how to break the ice. Somehow I've got to break the ice. I said, "And about that message," he goes, "You don't need to talk about it." He is a really good counselor. He should have thrown me on his couch and helped me a lot of childhood issues. Listen, amen is a word that we say at the end of our prayers or when the preacher makes a point that we like, but in the Bible, and here in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, it means, here it is, listen, I agree, may it be so. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, amen, amen, it's like underlining it, bolding it, italicizing it, and exclamation pointing it. This is to get, grab our attention. Amen, amen. The people were saying, whatever you say to us, we're going to do it. It's going to find agreement in our hearts, and we will make it so. Listen, do you approach the Bible like that? This is exalting. This is exalting the Word of God. This is the authority In our lives, it's not time to argue with the Bible. When it is clear, it's time to respond in obedience to it. But let me ask you a question. Let's get a little more personal. How comfortable are you with raising your hands in worship? How comfortable are you? I hope... I hope that more and more people in our church will begin to feel comfortable doing that. Listen, it is thoroughly biblical. It demonstrates dependence of God. Listen to Psalm 28. I hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. It is a cry of dependence on God. But even more, raising hands is a form of adoration and a form of worship. Psalm 134, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. When we lift up our hands, we are blessing God. Now listen, if you're uncomfortable with that, that's fine. 
This is no mandate to do it. It is a permission to be free in worship, but not only in worship corporately, but worship privately. How many of you, when you're reading the word of God and when you're praying, you have lifted up your hands to the Lord or you've put them out. God, fill my hands with life giving truth. Bring it into my heart. Listen, if you want the word of God to be transformational in your life, then you've got to approach it eagerly with great expectation, lifting it up as the authoritative word of God and letting it move you to exaltation in worship. It's pretty amazing to me. If you look back in that verse, verse 6, look how it starts. And Ezra blessed the Lord. You know, when you take your Bibles and you open them up during the week and you're having your quiet time and your devotions, do you stop and pray before you even look into the Word of God? That's the biblical pattern. Do you stop and pray? Well, you might do that, but do you pray, God, would you... Open my eyes, that's okay to pray. That's a biblical pattern. But do you ever get to the point where you're saying, God, let me bless you before I look in your word. Let me get my mind vertically oriented to you. How exalted and how great. Look what Ezra did. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Ezra, this means he prayed. Ezra prayed before he even started to read the Bible. And the way that he prayed was not, Lord, help all of us, the thousands of us in this massive Watergate Square. Help us to receive your word with gladness. That's not what he prayed. He said, Lord, I want to bless you. You're the giver of all of this. You're the reason these walls are done. You're the reason that we've gathered to celebrate and to worship. This is exalting and worshiping God. It's how you approach his word. Listen, for many, the reason they don't get anything out of the word of God is because even reading the word of God is about them. It's almost a horoscopic theological exercise. I'm going to look into the word of God, get what I need to know and get out of my day and have a great day. That's not the way it works. You get into the word of God so that you appreciate him more, so that you love him more, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And then out of that love and out of that adoration, it's overflowing Romans 5 eight into people around you. Approach the word of God with eagerness. You approach the word of God expecting him to speak. You approach the word of God esteeming it more highly than anybody else, anything else in your life. You exalt God through his word. And finally, explanation. You allow God to explain the meaning, whether he's going to do it through the spirit of God himself or through those he has put in our lives. Look at what it says in verse 7. Also, 13 men, the Levites, Helped the people to understand the law. This is something biblical. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. There's 13 men who helped the people understand what Ezra was reading. Now, I want you to picture these men. They're all Levites. They're all men. They're all priests. And you've got 13 men up on the platform reading the word of God. And what's happening is they take breaks. 
And when they take breaks, its purpose was for these other 13 men who are all around the people, all throughout the crowd, probably have divided them into small congregations. It's now these 13 men's job to explain what they who just read it meant. Look what it says. They read from the book clearly. You know what, they, you know what that means? It means this. These people had just come back from Persia. Their language was no longer Hebrew. They did not speak Hebrew fluently, yet the word of God was written in Hebrew. So it needed to be translated into Aramaic. That was their dominant language. So they're translating the language so that they could hear it clearly, but then they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now they're explaining it. They're expositing it. What you hear from us when we preach is almost always called expositional preaching. We rarely preach topically. We want to go through a passage. It's a way to stay safely grounded in the meaning of the passage. This is what they're doing. They're explaining it expositionally. They're giving the sense. So let me encourage many of you, some of you, friends, if you have the gift of teaching... If you have this supernatural, extraordinary ability to be able to give the sense of God's word, listen, you've got to know this. If you have the gift of teaching, here's the evidence, number one, you will love to learn. When God gives the gift of teaching, he supports it with an insatiable desire to learn, to read, to grow, to study. And you'll find that when you explain the Bible to someone, that there is a measure of understanding that they're going to receive. That's not because you or myself are such great teachers. It's because it's a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. But if you find that people are usually more confused when you explain the scriptures, and listen, you, you likely don't have the gift of teaching, but be a student of God's word and let your teaching come through the example of the way you live your life. But let me draw out a point. There were 13 elders, 13 Levites, going around the crowd giving the sense Yet there were likely nearly 50,000 people. The crowd in chapter 7 numbered 50,000. If you pull out the children, you're still looking. The children too young to understand, you're still looking at thousands and thousands of people. 13 men who are explaining the word. It's not because those who could and should teach just weren't stepping up. It's because God has never, ever given his church an overabundance of teachers in any time period. And James hints at the reason for this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Men, ladies, young people, if you're called to teach, it's going to be evident to other people. So listen, come to the elders. Come to the pastors, let us confirm that giftedness, and if it's necessary, let us discern instead, maybe you're gifted in other ways. Come to us, that's our job, let us get you involved in the area of teaching, if that is indeed your gifts. So study and show yourself approved, let God's spirit take his word and, and use you to reveal his truths to people. 
For the Spirit searches everything, Paul said, even the depths of God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. All right, you ready? I'm closing. And this is probably the most important part of the message. Get your word. If you don't have a Bible, come see me. We have Bibles to give. We want to be the people of God's word. Because it's God's word that changes our lives. But how does his word transform us? Listen, Nehemiah is showing us clearly. I didn't add anything to this sermon. All I did was do what I do at the apple orchard. You reach out to low-hanging fruit and you barely have to tug. It just falls into your hand. These are low-hanging fruits. Ready? You approach the word of God with eagerness. Are you eager for God's word? Hungry? And you approach the word of God with expectations. God's going to speak to you. It's living and active. He's going to do a work of transformation in your life. And even if it's corrective, he has the anesthesia of his grace that will bear you up under the discipline. He's going to speak. Are you expecting it? And do you hold it higher than anything else? It's the word of God. If Jesus held it higher than anything else and he wrote the word of God, then we ought to to bear after his example. And does it move you in your times of quiet reflection or corporate times of reflection? Does it move you to adoration? Do you lift up your hands? Are you standing up in your heart? You don't need to stand on your feet. It's your heart that he's after. Are you at attention on your, on your feet in your heart, ready to hear God's word because you've lifted it up? It's moved you to adoration. And are you allowing the spirit of God to explain it to you and sitting in his classroom until you get it? You have somebody speaking in your life that's got the gift of teaching. If you want transformation, friends, it will only come when the Spirit of God brings the Word of God to bear. And the way He will do that are those five principles and what we're going to see next week. You better hold on. It's going to be a pretty awesome sermon. Not because I'm preaching it, because it's so clear in the Word of God. So let's pray. Lord, thank you. For Nehemiah, thank you for what we're learning. God, I pray that all of us, me, all of us, Lord, this week will have an extra bit of eagerness. Lord, that before we even open your word, Father, we will cry out to you and we will bless you. We will elevate you to the right level that you ought to have in our lives and adore and exalt you. And Lord, as we open up the pages of our Bible Lord, I pray that there will be great eagerness, hunger, excitement. Lord, that we will expect to hear wonderful things from you. We will expect you to sit down with us and speak into our souls what needs to change, where you're happy, what you love, what displeases you. And Lord, that we would esteem your word more highly than anything else in our our lives, that it would be a priority for us and it would move us to raise our hands in exaltation. It would move us to fall down on our faces on the floor in worship. Because you, the creator and our sustainer, have met with us. And Lord, that the spirit of God would work and explain and teach And that you might bring people into our lives that have the gift of teaching. And we would submit to their counsel. We would submit to their teaching. 
Lord, help us to be the people of God who love your word and let it change this church to be powerfully revived and following hard after you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.